This is HPR episode 1697 entitled FODSIM 2015 Friday night and Saturday morning 1 of 5 and is part of the series interviews. It is hosted by Ken Fallon and is about 51 minutes long. The summary is Bradley M. Kuhn, Karen Sandler, Shriram Ramkrishna, Matthew Miller, Rich Bowen, Karen Beersing. This episode of HBR is brought to you by anhonesthost.com. Get 15% discount on all shared hosting with the offer code HPR15. That's HPR15. Better web hosting that's honest and fair at anhonesthost.com. Hi everybody, my name is Ken Fallon and we're at FOSTEM 2015 and we're at the Software Conservancy event and we're talking to you. This is Bradley Kuhn from the Software Freedom Conservancy. And uh, people might also know you from the podcast that is free as in? Free as in freedom. With, I co-host with my colleague who also works with the Software Freedom Conservancy, Karen Sandler. That's FAAF.us. Okay, so what is the Software Freedom Conservancy? So the Software Freedom Conservancy is a charitable organization that helps open source and free software projects get done what they need to get done. We take care of pretty much anything a project might need so that the developers can focus on what they do best, writing the great open source and free software that they do. So we handle everything you can imagine that might need to get done from trademark issues to licensing issues, any kind of legal stuff, as well as the very simple stuff of just handling donations and allowing the project to raise money to fund its developers, fund trips to conferences. So anything you can imagine a nonprofit might do for a charitable project, we take care of for open source and free software projects. Why can't they just do it themselves? Um, well, many of them do, and they do that for a while and usually come to us to ask for more help because it's very hard to get uh, volunteers to be able to do that myriad of work that needs to be done. Uh, and especially for a software developer who doesn't necessarily know, doesn't have the expertise in all these different things, they need to come to a place where we can provide that expertise to them. Uh, I happen to be a software developer myself, but, uh, but I haven't coded in a long time, so I wouldn't presume to jump into a project and assume I know how to code for them. Well, they, when they join us, realize, hey, we need help here, we need the experts, and they come to us to join us so that they can be part of us and join the other great free software projects in our organization and get the benefit of having one place for all these projects to get the same type of help they all need. And uh, say the project grows and they want to go out on their own, is that possible? Oh, of course. We've had a number of different great success stories. Uh, for example, the Mifos Project uh, formed their own organization, uh, and they have an organization called uh, COSM now, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the group on microfinance that has created its own organization after being a conservancy member. We don't want to force projects to stay in conservancy by any means. In fact, we expected when we started conservancy that many projects would want to form their own org, and we thought it would actually be a very common thing where we were helping projects form their own org. What we discovered was is we fortunately did our jobs pretty well, and most of them are very happy and want to stay. Uh, but when they get large enough and, and want more control of their own destiny, uh, they can, of course, go out on their own, and all our agreements with our projects allow for that, and actually we help them do it. And 
How can people help the Conservancy? So there's plenty of ways you can help the Conservancy. The, the most straightforward way for a lot of your listeners is probably if they're developers to actually just go and contribute code to our member projects. That's a pretty standard way to help. And other ways they can help is making donations to the Conservancy. We're a charity. So if you're in the United States, for example, you can make a charitable donation. If you go to sfconservancy.org slash supporter, you can become a supporter of the Software Freedom Conservancy and help us continue this work helping free software projects. Thank you very much, Bradley. Hi everybody, this is Ken here at FOSDEM 2015. We're at the Software Conservancy event and I've just nabbed Karen. How are you doing, Karen? Great. So, two things that I know about you. One is you're a lawyer and the other is you've got a heart, proving that lawyers have hearts. <laughs> you, know, I you have no idea how long I've been waiting to tell you that. Normally when I... Um begin my talks, I, I, I say I'm a lawyer and I, I always hide behind the podium in case someone has rotten fruit to throw at me. But no, everybody everybody who knows how you're involved in free software. Um, so you're giving the keynote tomorrow at uh, FOSTEM. What are you going to be talking about? I am. I'm going to be talking about uh, like the identity crises in freedom. So it's, like, it's called Identity Crisis, Are We Who We Say We Are? And it's about the, the deep complex that people have in free and open source software. I mean, free and open source software started as an ideological movement where people were, and, and, and where people were making software for convenience, for fun, um, and then also as they went to change the world and then create something also that happened to have commercial benefit. And then in the process of that developing, it turns out that, um, that the companies have become so essential to the development of free and open source software that we have all of these different affiliations and we often don't even think about them. Someone, I've heard many people have conversations where they say, we do this and we do that. And in one moment, they're talking about, you know, they're, they're, they're sometimes, you know, on a board of directors of an organization and the next breath, they're talking about their company and they're talking about the, the purpose of the, like the goals of the free software project and the goals of their companies. And it's all intertwined. And why do we have nonprofits and are they important and, and things like that. It's, um, you know, as I became, I think I was especially attuned to it because I was a lawyer, but it permeates all of free and open source software is figuring out how we're, how we're behaving, how we interact with each other and how we make sure that we do so in a way that's not misleading and helps. I mean, we know people that change jobs every two years, but they're working on the same thing for different employers. Yeah, so these are these are issues that come up over and over again, and I think that as long as we talk about them and we're cognizant of them, then we're we're able to do this really excellent balancing act between them. I think you and um, Bradley do that quite a lot. You know, with my conservancy hat on, I do this. <laughs> and I this hat on. You're right. We do that because we are in a situation all the time where um, where we have to speak for different parties. I mean, I am on the. Gnome Board of Directors as a volunteer. I was elected by the Gnome community. I'm, I used to be their executive director. I am still their pro bono counsel. I used to be um, a volunteer at Conservancy and pro bono counsel, and uh, I'm actually a co-founder of the organization, But uh, and I was an officer. I was secretary, but now I'm employed as executive director. I'm a co-organizer of the, um, the uh, Free and Open Source Software Outreach Program, which used to be called the Outreach Program for Women. And I have I, I do pro bono I'm pro bono general counsel of Question Copywriter. Oh, I'm pro bono counsel of the FSF. Like the number of affiliations just goes on and on and on and on. And I'm actually in a situation right now, which I can't talk about in detail, where I'm negotiating something where I have an interest on potentially a conflict on three sides of the transaction. So I am not involved at all in I, like, even though I'm 
very involved in the groups that are negotiating with each other. I can't participate in any of it because to do so would be wrong. Like I, I, I wouldn't even know who to represent. Like if there are people are are trying to negotiate with each other for something, how do I choose which side I'm more loyal to? So I just basically. I just bow out of the whole thing. I have to. And so right now there are negotiations going on between people who I normally am like a team with, but I can't participate. Not even on the sidelines? You know, I can do a, a very minor supporting role, but I have to be sure that I'm not in a position where I'm making any decisions and I'm not trying to influence anyone because, you know, I'm a trusted person in these groups because I've been volunteering for a long time with a lot of them. And, um, and so if I say something, even if it seems minor... At the end, it might have influence over what happens. That's wrong. Do we have enough lawyers in the FOSS community? Too many. Why are all these lawyers here? No, I'm kidding. Um, I don't know. It really depends on how you look at it. The lawyers that are involved in our community do such a wide variety of things. If I could clone Pam Chestick, who is standing right in front of me right now, like a down low way, she doesn't know I'm looking at her. But um, but if I could clone her and have a hundred of her, I would be really happy. Um, can't get enough of lawyers like her. And there are a lot of lawyers that do pro bono work. Um, you know, Erin uh, Williamson is here, and Justin Colonino is not here, but uh, tons of lawyers that do these, uh, that do great work. That I wish we had so many more of them. But you know, there are lawyers who are actively trying to pursue corporate interests that are not in the interests of free and open source software and. They everybody deserves to have representation, and it's perfectly. I don't have anything against lawyers that do that, but do we need more of them? I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> How important is FOSDEM for you? FOSDEM is incredibly important because it's enormous. It's a huge conference, and it's community run. And the community run conferences used to be such a huge part of free and open source software. We used to have so many of them, and they were um, they were really vibrant. And then the commercial conferences were, have become so polished and so well organized and such a part of the infrastructure that now the community conferences have been slowly dying out. And now there are only a few that exist. There are regional ones, um, you know, like Linux Fest Northwest and Ohio Linux Fest. Those are great in their small geographic areas. But, you know, right now there's FOSDEM and there's like Linux Conf Australia are two of the only huge community-run conferences, and those are fundamentally different venue for speaking. Like, you may have noticed some of the press at LCA um, that has come out has talked about, like, Linus Torvalds talked about, uh, you know, uh, people who uh, who say that he's a toxic personality and he should chill out on mailing lists. Like, he, Linus has had that conversation at countless other conferences, but it's always been highly controlled. Right, and now you have a community conference where you start having that conversation, and you had people lining up to tell. Like the first two questions of the the keynote session FAQ were asking him about that specifically, and 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 it doesn't happen that way at the other conferences. I must say though, he did an episode on that, and it was the only episode that I stopped and deleted. Really? Yes. Because oh. I think this. Well, I will appraise this. I think they. I know. Where I just want to say that you censored me by deleting me. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm laughing hard. Yes, at yes. You're, uh, I'm not, no. you're a lawyer, right? I'm going to shut up now. At this no, point. no, no, no. Um, I think quite a lot of the thing was cultural. But then since then, I'm thinking we have a lot of issues, and it, it does no harm to bring them to the fore. 
Look, I don't want to get into the actual substantive discussion because I think you and I might, you know, there were some things that, in retrospect, I wish we had explained a little bit more and delved into a little bit more, and maybe we'll do another odd cast on some of those things because I've gotten a little bit of feedback, and, and I think that there are good points to be made. But you're not, um, but I think what we're, what we're discussing here is not really the substantive discussion that was contained in that particular yeah. episode, so much as it's the fact that, that at, the corporate com- at the corporate conferences, there's an interest in controlling the conversation such that it, yeah. it diminishes controversy and make companies feel more comfortable with sponsoring and their, um, you know, and their profitable interests. Whereas a community conference is about making sure that our it, the interests are run by the community and trying to improve our our, our, our overall um, way that we interact with each other and our our, our goals as a community and, a, and as I, and often with an ideological bent. And having a place to have those conversations where it's not going to get shut down is incredibly important. And so there's a lot of quiet censorship that happens at some of these corporate organized conferences. And I think these conferences are fantastic events. I think that there's a place for them. I think that those companies that do that, they're, you know, they're performing a valuable service. But, um, but we need both. And the community conferences, because they're at universities, because there's less money sloshing around, you know, at the beer event, everyone is paying their own way. It, these events become less popular. And at FOSDAM, because it's such an institution, because it's so huge, it's just an enormous event that has a lot of momentum. And I, I'm really excited by that. And that makes FOSDAM an incredibly important conference. Okay. If you could change one thing about the FOSS community, what would it be? Just one thing. I think that what I would do is I would, if I could change one thing, is I would, a lot of the problems that we have are historical ones. Like, people are so receptive when I talk about software freedom with an ideological bent. And and I think that we have this, we're coming from this historical place where our community was very divided. Okay, so if I were to change one thing, I would, I would unify us a lot more. Um, because... Right now, and, and, and where we come from is a place where we have so many options for everything, and that's part one of the joys of free software is that everyone can do their own thing and we can have many, many answers to things, but we are such a divided community on so many things. So many people I talk to think that free software is a fundamentally different thing than open source software, and we have these arguments over and over again, and it just serves to make us completely unable to to really advocate to newcomers in an effective, unified way. And so... And one of those people are a I, you know, I, I think it's really unfair to isolate one person. No, no, but I mean, a lot of, a lot of people look up to RMS, yeah. including myself. Yeah. But... I, well, so, I think RMS is right that we should focus on freedom and we should focus yeah, yeah, on yeah. ideology, but at the same time, I think we should... And I've said this before. Like, I think that if you say open source, as long as we're talking about freedom, as long as we're talking about those user rights, then I don't care what language we use particularly. He's right in that if we don't ever talk about ideology and we use loaded terminology, then we're going to have a problem because people won't think that freedom is included. But it's a matter of style, you know. And and I, I think from where from where I'm sitting, I just wish that we were a little bit more unified rather than fighting so much amongst ourselves. Okay. Um, was there anything else I missed? There are always a thousand things we could talk about, and we'll have another conversation another time. We will do. Okay, thank you very much, Karen, and thanks very much for organizing the event. It's been very delightful to get free beer and food. Sets us up coming. for the day. And good luck tomorrow. Thanks. Hi, um, this is uh, Ken. We're at the Software Freedom Conservancy event, and I'm talking to... 
Sri Ram Ram Krishna. How are you doing? And what are what do you do? Why are you here at FOSTEM? I am uh, director of the Ganem Foundation, and I'm here to support free software and, of course, the Ganem Project. And for those three people out there who don't know what GNOME is, uh, that's a new product that they're going to be releasing? GNOME is the um, one of the more interesting desktop projects we have for Linux. Uh, we like to push the frontiers. Yeah, so I've heard. Um, you were a... There was, okay, there was a lot of co uh, controversy when you moved from 2 to version 3. Has that, is that over now? I think mostly it's over. Uh, a lot of people have accepted uh, what we're trying to do. Uh, but in back in 2011, it's, it was very hairy. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, talking with a lot of people and getting their feedback. And hopefully we incorporate a lot of that feedback back into the, back into the project. I know that from what I see in social media that a lot of people do like where GNOME is heading these days. So uh, I like to think that a lot of the controversy is over, but there's a lot of, still a lot of our luggage is still is still there. But do you think that the code base has benefited from it? Benefited from it? Uh, I'm sorry. What was, say, what was the main driver for it? Was it uh, old code base that needed to be updated, um, or was it a the, new paradigm? The driver was that the code base didn't really give us the flexibility that we needed to explore the user uh, uh, user experience. Uh, GNOME 2 uh, was still sort of rigid. So if you, if you look at where we are versus GNOME 2 versus GNOME 3, GNOME 2 merged the user experience with the development platform. Whereas if you look at GNOME 3, we have GNOME Shell, which is sort of divorced from the uh, uh, development platform. GNOME Shell is its own thing. We It's written in JavaScript, and we have a lot of ability to change how it looks, how it feels. It uses a lot of the standard technologies like CSS, web interfaces that people know. So if you see, if you look, we have things like extensions that actually changes on the fly what the user interface looks like. So originally it was there so that designers can modify the look and feel and be able to test their 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 interfaces. Whereas now it's also used for other people to say, well, we don't really like the way GNOME did this. We want to do our own experience. And so you see a lot of things where we, they override design elements and did their own thing, uh, over and overriding the design that we had in GNOME 3. But if I if I stand back and look at it, we've got you had the GNOME project, and then that's you had Ubuntu went off and did the Unity thing, and then the old code has been taken, the GNOME 2 code has been taken and been used in the Mate or Mate project. Mate, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about them? Is that is, is that so not a waste of I developer actually, resources? Diversity is our strength. So we have lots of people who use. Uh, so we have Mate. So Mate looks at it in a different way. Uh, we have Elementary OS that also has their own set of designs. 
But what's important, I, I, let me just go back to Monte. They're actually reporting to GTK3, and eventually they'll, they'll be their own project going in their own way. But I think what's, imp- what's great about all these projects is they have their own idea what user experience looks like. And that puts pressure back on GTK and some of these common libraries. Yeah. It means that they're much more universal. Instead of, a lot of people used to complain that, well, GNOME has taken over GTK. But when you have all these other projects, that means we could, it could still be so much more a universal toolkit as opposed to just being the GNOME toolkit. So I, I, I embraced them. We, 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 we had a Hackfest last year uh, where we, we invited the elementary guys. And we actually had a great meeting of minds. And we really want to continue, uh, at least like in Guadec, to invite people who use, uh, use the platform. So if it's Mate, we would love to have them go out there and give presentations. If it's elementary OS, if it's Cinnamon, all those people, we would love to have them out there and, and show us show us their point of view about what user experience is and what new things are doing that we also can maybe uh, steal or I guess steal is not the right word but incorporate if it makes sense and maybe they can do the same thing I will get attacked if I don't ask this question Um, how do you think the accessibility of GNOME shell is at the moment Um, I'm really can't say I know that initially it was not on par with GNOME 2 and I haven't talked to the accessibility team of late so I don't really want to give a, a, a status but as far as I understand it's it's almost on par the, uh, the, the one thing that I've heard about GNOME Shell is that you require a 3D graphics driver to run you do it, it does require 3D graphics but it requires a, a hardware that's, uh, well, at the time when we said it, 2011, it was five years old. So, you know, you're talking about something that's out in 2006. So if you have something that's out in 2006, it should work with, and an additional, we actually have software, software rendering as well. So if you have a powerful enough CPU, we can still do the 3D stuff. It's not going to work on a Raspberry Pi, though, will it? I beg your pardon? It won't work on a Raspberry Pi, then, will it? I haven't tried. I don't know. Maybe, maybe... You might want to try that. I, I mean, maybe I have to try that. I haven't... I don't, I don't have a Raspberry... I have a Raspberry Pi, but it, I use it for, you know, uh, X... Uh, what is it? The X... XBMC, right? Or, or Cody, Cody. Yeah, Cody. Yeah, yeah, the new one. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you looking forward to tomorrow at the Foster? So I have two talks. Um, one, tomorrow I'll be talking about our trademark battle that we had recently. If uh, most of people remember, uh, we had a company that had taken over the GNOME trademark and we had a, we had a battle. We had a remarkable, remarkable uh, 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 fundraiser that was, that, that just went beyond all expectations. So me and, Pamela Chastek, who is our pro bono lawyer, uh, will be talking about that. And then on Sunday, I, I'm talking about uh, the, a lot of things we do in GNOME. Uh, 
actually puts pressure on the Linux system. So we actually were up and down the stack. So unlike a lot of desktop, they tend to stay within the middleware portion, but we're known to actually work in the kernel space uh, and, and other places because in order to do something that says just works requires to be outside our our stack. So, yeah. if, so you know, we have people like Bastian Nocera that works deeply in Bluetooth. And a lot of things to make Bluetooth just works requires him to work in Bluetooth. So yeah. a lot of the stuff he's there, he implements in there. And then you have things like Dbus. We have KDBus that's coming in there. That came out of the GNOME project. Uh, you know, you have Pulse Audio. You have all these kind of things that we... Even, even things like Compass... It was the GNOME project that came out with the Cube. Uh, it was by Sousa at the time with Miguel and everything. I remember we had we had brought that out in Oscon. We showed the Cube going on there, and you know all those things that that came that started in GNOME. That didn't start for anywhere anywhere else. That's and so we we actually come up with these things. Now we abandoned a lot of the Compass type stuff because. We really was focused on user experience, so we're very conservative on all these special effects. But it's it's a it's it's true that we're the ones who had kind of explored that space, saying this is sort of that compositing type of thing. Compositing yeah. desktop started in GNOME, so you know we're always trying to push the frontier because. When you're when you start with an overreaching goal, saying we want to make great user experience, you're 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 saying how can we do that, and how can we make changes up and down the stack to make that happen? The freedesktop.org um, initiative was an attempt to sort of harmonize the the desktop. How is that going? Are you still involved in that? I, I am. I'm myself and not involved. It's still we're still doing that. A lot of the things like Dbus is still done in free desktop, uh, and I suspect any future things we want to do, we we're basically working on sandbox applications. I suspect that will also move to free desktop at some point. Uh, not to put words in them, but it, it makes sense that we want to wait, want something universal as opposed to something you know specific, something as important like that. Okay, thank you very much for the conversation. Is there anything else that you want to uh, say? No, uh, no I, I'm, 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 I'm good, thank you. Are you heading over to the beer event? I am. Right, okay, I won't keep you any further. Good morning, everybody. My name is Ken Fallon. Fostem has started. The hangovers are still in place. And we're at the Fedora booth we're talking to. Matthew Miller. How are you, Matthew? How, what are you doing here? At the, who are you and why are you here? I am the Fedora project leader. I am here to talk about Fedora and meet people and talk about their projects and distributions and connect up with everything that's going on. And do you work for Red Hat? I do, yeah. I'm fortunate enough that they pay me to work on something full-time that I would be working on for fun otherwise. 
Can you give us a, an idea for the two people listening who don't know what Fedora is? Uh, Fedora is a Linux distribution that's been around for about a decade. It is the upstream basis of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and CentOS and some other things. Um, it is uh, sponsored by Red Hat, but it is a community-run and community-led project. And you recently had a release, Fedora 21? Fedora 21, out in a couple months now. Um, our best release yet, as each release is, of course. But um, this time I really mean it. It's a very solid release with a lot of good stuff. You did. Uh, you broke the distro up into three different things. Can you tell us a little bit about what the philosophy behind that is? Yeah, so historically, Fedora, uh, you know, back in the olden days when Fedora started, it came from Red Hat Linux, um, which you, know, you could buy in box sets on shelves, and that was kind of a general purpose distribution for all kinds of things, and people would you know, use it for servers and desktop and everything else. And uh, so Fedora inherited sort of a community of users from these different user bases, but over the years, Fedora um, had kind of sort of drifted towards being a desktop um, as sort of the most obvious uh, form of the distribution, but we still had a lot of sysadmin users and people using it for even in-production server uses, and those things kind of pull at each other, so we had you know a lot of disagreements about you know what the defaults should be, how things should be made, should we even have defaults when people are using it for different ways, and so we decided that having actual different different focuses, we'll have a workstation release that's meant for you know being a uh, you know, power user desktop, uh, and then having a server release is actually meant to be a server as a top-level target would sort of help diffuse some of those tensions because you can say, okay, this default makes sense for a server, this default makes sense for a desktop, and we don't have to try and find something that makes sense for both of them. We can each have their own path. And, but do you not run the risk of the two things diverging and needing more people to maintain this whole thing? Yeah, um, there's a risk. And so um, we, we have a Fedora base design working group that's sort of um, kind of curating the common core between the things to try and make sure that, you know, where things can be shared, they stay shared and we don't go too far off. Um, but I think it, there's a balance between that divergence and commonality that we want to try and get right. Yeah, you're only one release in anyway, so what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Yes, exactly. Is this your first time at Foster? Uh, no, I was here last year as well, um, so it's, I, I don't quite feel like a veteran yet. But I, uh, Yeah, you know your way around. Tell me, did, how did you end up here? What, what is your story? What did you, what did you do? So um, I worked... Uh, yeah, I, I dropped out of college and helped start an ISP uh, back back in the you know dot com days, and then um, I my friend was working at Boston University and said you should come out here. I can get you a job. So I worked at um, at BU in Boston for uh, about a decade on the um, Boston University Linux project because back then at that time. If you would go and get you know Red Hat Linux from you know the store shelves or whatever, someone did a study and they showed that if you put this on university campus, Red Hat Linux was the most secure because it was 15 minutes before it was broken into and owned, and everything else you know was was worse. Um, and so our security team, so I worked for the central IT department, and our security team was running around telling everybody, "You can't run Linux. It's not you can't you can't have it on our network. It's not we can't we can't we can't handle it." And so uh, 
but you know we love Linux, but we, so we we decided that we would make a version that was tailored for the campus that had better security defaults and also would tie into like our AFS file system infrastructure and Kerberos and things like that. So put together sort of a derivative distribution that was meant for the university. So I worked on that um, and got involved in Fedora as the upstream for that. Uh, for about a decade, and you know, by the end of that decade, those initial problems, you know, now if you, if you go by RHEL, you can pretty much trust that security is at least a concern, even if nothing's perfectly secure. It's a you know, distributions care about security now, so that need wasn't there a, as much, and so uh, I moved on to another job and things, but I stayed involved in Fedora and. When a job opening at Red Hat came up, I took it. Excellent. And now you're here at Fostem. Okay, well, thank you very much for the interview. Is yeah. there anything else that you want to uh, announce, or uh-uh. what are your plans for the coming year? Uh, no big announcements. Fedora 22 coming out in May. We're back on our six-month schedule after a long, longer Fedora 21 release. So I'll talk about that tomorrow at my talk a little bit. Um, Where's that going to be? Uh, in the uh, distributions dev room. Um, I think it's at... At early afternoon sometime. Yeah, all these uh, talks, I think, will be online on the FOSTEM site, so you can catch that later. Well, thank you very much yeah. for the interview, and uh, enjoy the booth. It's thank you. possibly the coldest booth here, right beside the door. The best booth, perhaps, yeah. but you're going to have the flu next week, <laughs> I think. Right by the door, but it, it's worth the cold. We can handle it. Okay, thank you very much. Hi everybody, this is Ken Fallon here at FOSTEM again. Right beside the Fedora stand is the CentOS stand, and I'm talking to... I'm Rich Bowen. Hi Rich, and you're at the CentOS stand. What's your, um, what's your involvement with the CentOS project? Well, I'm kind of borrowing space from my colleagues here. Um, I work on the RDO project, which is a, a distribution of OpenStack for CentOS. Ah, so tell us about that. First of all, tell us about CentOS. So CentOS, um, I'm, I'm sure that my colleagues can tell you more, but uh, CentOS is a rebuild of Red Hat Enterprise Linux and uh, a large community of people developing or producing packages of a wide variety of things for distribution on CentOS. So CentOS is a RHEL without the Red Hat branding, more or less. That's right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a close relationship with the Red Hat people, um, but it is operated as an independent project, and it's got lots of community contribution from outside of Red Hat. Okay. So what's RDO, and uh, why is it exciting? So OpenStack is a uh, cloud computing platform, and there are hundreds of companies that are involved in this. Yep. But as with uh, most open-source projects, it releases source code, and RDO produces packages for use on CentOS and Fedora and uh, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And so we're a community of people that are that are working on the packaging aspect of it, making sure that it actually works, making sure that the packages have all the necessary uh, requirements um, to, to run on CentOS. So the idea would be you install CentOS, you add a repository, or are these available? That's correct. So you add a repository and then you run some puppet scripts which stand up your OpenStack cloud because OpenStack is uh, it's complicated and it can run on one machine or thousands 
And so it's not just a, a question of installing one RPM. You actually have to orchestrate all of the different machines and get them talking to each other. And that's done with, with puppet scripts, and that's, that's the piece that we provide at RDO. Okay. So it is very, very much tied into puppets and that sort of philosophy. That's correct. And, and it's called PackStack, but it's a, it's a set of puppet scripts that, that orchestrate standing up the cloud. And uh, how difficult is it to run? Uh, well, if you do a simple install, you run PackStack and you answer some questions and in 20, 30 minutes you have your cloud. Um, and of course, OpenStack being OpenStack, you can make it as complicated as, as you need to and that can be, that can be difficult. But, uh, but hopefully, the, you know, hopefully the installer takes a lot of the work out of that, but there's still, there's still some decision-making to do. And is this, uh, is this um, being used quite a lot now, or is it still early days at this point? Well, we are, um, we're about two and a half years on in the RDO project, and uh, you know, kind of our poster child is CERN, the uh, nuclear research facility, and they've got 70,000 nodes running RDO. Yeah, okay. but, and then there are many other smaller installations. So, yeah, it is actually being used in production. A lot of, a lot of uh, research organizations as well as, as well as companies are using RDO in their, in their production clouds. And do you, are you also employed by Red Hat? or are you? Uh, I am. I, I do work at Red Hat in the open source, open source and standards department. Okay, okay. Seem, seems to be a lot of people working for Red Hat around here. Yeah, we've got uh, the, the CentOS guys are, are under the Red Hat umbrella now, and, and Fedora is affiliated with us, and uh, we've got an overt table over there as well, which is a virtualization platform that's, that's under the, the Red Hat sponsorship. Yeah, do a lot for the community, I guess. Yes, uh, we, we believe that, uh, and this is what really attracted me to Red Hat to begin with, yeah. that we believe that a strong upstream benefits our customers, and so we have lots of people that work exclusively in the upstream, and you ask them how much our product costs, and they say, oh, I don't know, I don't work on that part of it. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's really cool to be working in the upstream. So are you going to be in the booth here the whole day, or are you giving talks? Well? I'm, I'm not giving talks, but I am also working on the OpenStack booth some, yeah. and then I'll be working on the OpenOffice booth as well because I'm associated with the Apache Software Foundation, and so I'll be I'll be jumping around quite a bit today. Okay, well, enjoy the show, and thank you very much for the interview. Thank you. I'm at, just moved down from the CentOS project and I'm talking to... KB Singh. And what's your involvement with the CentOS project? Oh, I got involved back in 2004 yeah. uh, when the project was starting off. And then since 2009, I've been the project lead for, for CentOS. Okay. So, um, and just to remind folks what CentOS is. Um, CentOS started off by being a community rebuild of the Red Hat Enterprise Linux sources. Um, and over the course of the last 11 years, it's become pretty much the de facto standard on web hosting and... Um, high-performance computing, and basically if you're looking for a community platform for stable computing, CentOS is literally the default choice at the moment. Okay, and you've been um, you've been brought under the uh, Red Hat umbrella, so basically they're paying for you guys? Well, I mean, the easy way to explain this is that there is a joining of forces, as in Red Hat has come on board as the biggest sponsor, uh, but the project still runs independently. We have our own board. Um, Red Hat has some level of influence on the board, but it's not exclusively on Red Hat stuff, as it were. 
So what Red Hat allows us to do is to bring a few people on board, at the moment three or four guys, yeah. um, who can then focus on the day job as being, you know, helping the communities grow on a technical side of things. But the communities still run independently. Okay. Now, when we were discussing this last year, that move had just happened, and I think a lot of people were questioning what they, what the reasoning behind it was, and people were saying, well, it's the... It's the selling of the contracts. You, you, you get it's like the, the first sample is free, and then we'll sell you a Red Hat uh, Enterprise contract later. But I was told that that wasn't the case. No, that's still not the case. Um, what what has happened is there's now a clearer definition of what is a CentOS project versus what is CentOS Linux as a distribution. Yeah. Um, and CentOS Linux as a distribution is still carrying on being what it has always been. There's no change in that at all. Now, from the CentOS project side of things, there's been a lot of changes in that previously it was very hard to get involved as a contributor. It was very hard to set up a trust relationship. All of those barriers have now come down. We've got a bigger uh, contributor footprint. We've got special interest groups coming on board that allows anybody with any project, you know, anything to do with infrastructure or otherwise, come on board with CentOS, consume our resources, consume our build services, consume our testing infrastructure, consume our release infrastructure. Things which were not possible in the past, we can now do. Um, and one of the key reasons why we're able to do this now is that in the past we've been a completely donation sponsor driven community and we never accepted financial donations because keeping the money out of the equation um, made it possible for us to focus on the technical side of things it also meant that the people who got involved were people who actually wanted to get involved um, so in the past and as we do now as well we stay away from commercial endorsements we don't endorse vendors we don't encourage people to go out and you know try and build services on top of centers which aren't themselves open as well um, now <clears throat> well, that, one of the after effects of that was that we never had any money to spend. So we ran, uh, our, our, our core infrastructure ran off 120 machines donated by I think about 116 vendors in 83 different data centers um, and across 17 countries. So this is a number I remember from Christmas of year before last because that's when we did an audit. Um, and I remember sitting down and speaking to some of the Red Hat guys at the time and they said, you know, so what are your assets? And we said, none. They're like, well, then how do you sustain, you know, X number of millions of users? And we're like, thanks to the donors and the sponsors. And every time the donor or a sponsor comes on board, we make sure that they understand there is no transfer of ownership. They retain ownership of their assets. They retain ownership of their hardware, of the software that they're giving us and everything. And they allow us to use it for community purposes. Now, fast forward a year down the road, Red Hat has budgets. So that, what that allows us to do is now justify requests for money where we can spend things on things like setting up a large community test infrastructure. We could have perhaps done this in the past as well, but it would have been hard to sustain it because if a donor goes away, a vendor goes away, they take the hardware with them. And it's hard to, you know, like, for example, if you run a project, I don't want to go and tell you to come and use my infrastructure with the caveat that I can't tell you if it's going to be here tomorrow or not. Having Red Hat on the sponsor list now means that we're able to do that. And that helps the overall community around CentOS as well. I mean, we don't push... For us, success isn't about CentOS having, you know, doubling its user base. For us, success is if we can double the number of projects that consume CentOS to deliver service to their users. I mean, like, if you're in the database uh, writing software, software writing business, we want you to use CentOS. We want to be able to help you get a better platform out for people who are consuming your applications. And what's in it for Red Hat? Um, so Red Hat has an interesting situation. In 2003, they exited the community distribution built, curated by Red Hat. Fedora became the community representation of their distribution, which was built, curated, sort of released by community. Fedora's never really been released by community. It's been released by Red Hat. But it's developed and curated by a community. Red Hat Enterprise Linux is targeted at um, the business users. 
people who need some level of assurances. Two o'clock in the morning, your machine breaks. You want a phone yep. number to call. Yep. Yep. Um, and my pro, my my answer to that would be, you know, have your credit card ready. Um, fire up Thunderbird, send an email to CentOS Devel. Hope for the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or you know, so that doesn't that kind of works for a lot of people. It doesn't work for everybody. Yeah, yeah. So over a period of time, I think we've tried really hard to build a firewall between CentOS and Red Hat. Anybody who joined Fedora, anybody who joined Red Hat as an employee, was automatically disconnected from any privilege levels in CentOS. It is perhaps, in, in retrospect, it seems a bit overly pedantic. However, what it allowed us to do was to build that firewall between CentOS and Red Hat. Um, and when the conversations with Red Hat started off, it was pretty clear that they benefited from having CentOS in the ecosystem, because it allowed developers, it allowed third parties, it allowed contributors to build, stabilize, to test against an RHEL compatible platform without actually having to spend the 500 bucks, 600 bucks to get onto an RHEL platform. So while they would never certify a piece of software which was built and tested on CentOS, it meant that people could build and test on CentOS and then go to RHEL whenever they needed to, at whatever point they needed to. So having CentOS be a part of the family is like the third leg of the stool is now kind of complete in that there is now uh, an area or 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 a group that you can go to for upstream innovation. But if you're working on glibc, if you're working on the kernel, if you're working on GCC, if you're working on you know the core competencies of what is Linux, you have Fedora, which is a constantly moving, constantly evolving, constantly stabilizing environment. Bleeding edge. Yeah. I would I would probably say it's slightly off the bleeding edge. I think bleeding edge is probably you know LKML or you know just it's not far off. Yeah. yeah it's not yeah. far off. You'd still cut yourself. Well, that, that, yeah, yeah. You will still the cut yourself. Involved, yes. Believe me. Yes. yes. Um, but I think what what CentOS now does is it allows. Um, people to curate content that they care about most with an understanding that the platform isn't going to change on them every six months. Yeah. So for example, if you're in the business or if you, know, if you have a great idea on your way back home from work thinking, hey, I want to write a piece of software that does one plus one is equal to three. Now you can go away, you can do that on CentOS and you know that your GCC isn't going to change for a few years, your kernel isn't going to change for a few years, your GNOME isn't going to change, your KDE isn't going to change, your Zlib, your, all, all of the libraries that you need, yeah. the core platform isn't going to evolve on you. So as to speak, because most people who are doing app-level stuff or user-facing stuff, and this is open-source projects, are not in the business of curating Zlib. They're not in the business of curating GCC. And they want that static target that they can build against, stabilize against, deliver a user story against. And I think that's what that's the second leg of the stool, as it were. So you've got the Fedora for platform innovation, you've got CentOS for innovation on the platform, and then you've got RHEL for people who need an SLA that come along with it. Um, and in many ways, I think, we all complement each other, but also in many ways we compete with each other. Yeah. And I think, in, and that's good, and that's healthy for everybody because it gives the users a choice. If somebody wants to build on CentOS, he's got his app up, everything is fine, but he wants to keep an eye on what's coming next. He may every Saturday decide to run it on Fedora as well. Okay. Yeah. And then if he has somebody who comes down the road and says, "Hey, you know, um, I'm happy. This is fantastic software. This is making me money. I want support on it." He could then reach out to Rel and say, "Look." If my guy was to use RHEL, could I work with you on supporting him on the RHEL platform? So yep. it, it kind of gives you the whole it gives you the whole yeah, picture. The whole story. So, are you going to be stuck here in the booth, or are you going to give him some talks? So, um, we've been coming to FOSDEM for about eight years in an official capacity. I've been coming to FOSDEM. I missed one FOSDEM, unfortunately, the first one. Oh. Um, and uh, so FOSDEM for for us as a group and for me personally isn't really about the table as such. It's about reinterfacing with all of the relationships we built up over the years. So. Um, over the next two days, you'll find me pretty much at every other table, except for the CentOS table, talking to the guys out there. You know, and also it, it gives us a great opportunity to talk to the guys, you know, one on one about what we're getting wrong. You know, stuff we get right is fine because that's already right. The things that I care about are stuff that we're getting wrong. 
and then collect enough of uh, you know enough of feedback to go away and then basically build out a six month plan and hopefully come back next year and you know you you hope uh, the list changes i'm sure we we'll get enough stuff wrong next year as well but you don't want the same thing to keep coming up again and again and that's that's basically what my personal individual plan for fostum is to i've got my list i've got my list from last year i know who i spoke to last year i'll be seeing all of those guys again and uh, hopefully the list have changed excellent thank you very much uh, for the interview and uh, good luck with your your fostum uh, thank you very much thanks You've been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by an HBR listener like yourself. If you ever thought of recording a podcast, then click on our contribute link to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club and is part of the binary revolution at binrev.com. If you have comments on today's show, please email the host directly, leave a comment on the website or record a follow-up episode yourself. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license.